from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. We get these asked these questions about about us, but I would I would love to see the questions flipped and asked about the society as a whole, but also about the folks that I mean, you know, I am glad President Biden was elected. He is 76 years old when he ran. Mm-hmm. The life, my life expectancy is like 62. I want him to answer these questions. I'm Sarah Fenske. 25 years ago, Reginald Dwayne Betts saw his entire life trajectory change in 30 minutes. In what he has since described as, quote, a moment of insanity, Betts, who was then a 16-year-old high school junior, carjacked a man. He would serve eight years in prison for the crime. But that wasn't the end of the story. Reginald Dwayne Betts has become a poet, a memoirist, and poetry editor of the New York Times Magazine. He's also become an activist and was appointed to the Coordinating Council of the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention by President Obama. And he got his associate's degree, his bachelor's degree, his MFA, and his JD. He's now working on his PhD from Yale Law School. Reginald Dwayne Betts is featured in a virtual event hosted tomorrow by the St. Louis organization Women's Voices Raised for Social Justice. The event is titled Visionary Voices, Reginald Dwayne Betts from Jail to Yale. And joining us today is Reginald Dwayne Betts. Dwayne, welcome to the show. Oh, no, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Dwayne, you described that carjacking you committed at 16 as a moment of insanity. Take us back. Were you a pretty good kid? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, it's interesting because um, cause whatever I say next has to be a contradiction. You know, mm-hmm. I was either a really good kid, but then it's why did you carjack somebody? And oh, I wasn't a good kid. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Um, that was the first crime you committed. You were on a student. And so it's, it's complicated. But what I'll say is that uh, back then, I imagined I was a better child than some of my friends. Mm-hmm. And I imagine my future looked brighter than them. And and my real feeling was um, <clears throat> not recognizing that uh, being in community, our fates were all tied and, and, and not working to make our sort of collective fate better. I was like working to make it worse. Hmm. So you had been an honor student. Had you been planning at that point, I'm, I'm going to college, I'm going to Yale Law School. What, what were your hopes before this derailed you? <laughs> Yeah, no, I was always planning on going to Yale Law School. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. you dreamed big. <laughs> no. It's so crazy though, because I have a lot of classmates who, you know, who who were always planning on going to Yale Law School. And what what I hear when they tell me that is how what was in the realm of possibility for them as a thirteen year old, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen year old uh, was Yale Law School even the dream? Mm-hmm. I imagined going to college, but I didn't even know what that meant. You know, I was in eleventh grade. I didn't know what it meant to write a a college entry, you know, like a personal statement to get into school. Mm-hmm. I was would have been a first generation college student and didn't even know that term for it. You know, didn't even didn't even know enough to think that no one in my family had been to college. Mm-hmm. And so college was a dream much like I mean much like the NBA. Yeah. Except I had a more sense of the skill required to get in the NBA and like my lack of it. 
than I did uh, the skill required to get into college and how I, I, I did have those those skills. Hmm. So you didn't even really realize all the possibility you had and just how hard it was going to be to achieve that possibility. Then you did this act that set you off on a completely different path. You ended up doing eight years in prison. Was this an, an adult prison? Yeah, well, I was. I, I did a little bit of time in juvenile detention centers, about a month, month and a half. And then after that, I was at the county jail, and then I was at prisons for the entire time. So it was always adult prisons, yeah. And so you were you were just a kid in there. Um, what did it take to survive in that environment as a, a 16, 17-year-old um, in there with adults? Yeah, there are no children in prison. And, and what I mean is um, when you live in a society that sends 14, 15, 16 year olds to prison, the society just acknowledges that you're no longer to be cared for. Mm. And you truly have to figure it out on your own. And so, you know, there are no children in prison. Once they put handcuffs on you, once you commit a crime that prosecutors, defense attorneys, your relatives, everybody says this makes you disposable, you no longer get to be a child. And, uh, and, you know, you survive the best way you know how. But the thing is, that doesn't mean that the men in prison don't frequently see your vulnerability mm-hmm. and protect it. Don't see your lack of awareness and understanding and don't try to shield you from what could ruin you. I mean, in a lot of ways, I was locked up with men who cared far more about me than the judge, the prosecutor, these... uh elected officials who passed the laws that would lead um, a prosecutor to feel like it was his only choice but to send me to prison, that would lead a judge to, you know, stand on the bench and judge over me and, and act as if the possibility of a life sentence for the crime I committed was somehow justice. And they all did that. So you know, I think it's important for, for me to point out that uh, it was men in prison who showed me far more humanity than the system that sent me to prison. Mm-hmm. And it was men who prison in prison who expected me to go to college. Really? Who expected me to, you know, be a lawyer, be a writer in ways that, like, folks on the outside didn't. So, so yeah. Did these, these men in prison, did they see something within you? Or, or did they have that expectation for, for all the young guys coming in, that, that they wanted you to avoid uh, getting stuck there forever? No, nah, I mean, it's, it's all happenstance. You know, a lot of it is, is, is luck. Mm-hmm. It's who you get around. And it's also what you're into. And so I was always in the books. And I was a GED tutor from the time I was 16 to the time I came home. You know, I worked in a law library. And so and I wrote letters for people, you know, you, you exist in a space in the same way, you know, it's still a community of people mm-hmm. and, and you end up being a thing within that community, you know, the smart young kid. Uh, and a, and a kid who ball. could write. Yeah. And a kid who could write. And so, um, so I don't know, again, I, I think everybody ends up being an individual and, and I was lucky because I know people who develop their skills while in prison. I came to prison with a lot of skills that I was able to further develop. And I know a lot of people came into prison and just were kind of broken before they had a real chance to develop the skills that might have, you know, changed their life. 
And that development that you were able to do while you were there in prison, did that equip you in any way for the reentry, um, life outside of prison? I don't even know what reentry means. I actually hate the word reentry. <laughs> I'm sorry about that then. <laughs> no, I mean, because because I get it. I get where it comes from. But I think um, sometimes I feel like reentry presumes, and, and mind you, I say I hate the word reentry, and I got several poems called Essay on Reentry. But if you read those poems, those poems exist in and out of prison. Those poems reflect on the prison experience and kind of try to like move deeply away from it. And so I think what, I, what I'm trying to say is, um, what I'm trying to argue is that I didn't re-enter because I was always there. Mm-hmm. And while inside, I tried to hold fast to the notion that I was always there. So I was sending poems out to the world to get published. I was you know, engaging with the world, with my family. It wasn't an exact um, presence, but I tried to find a way to have a presence. And because of that, I think, um, and like right now, I'm still engaging with prison. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm accepting phone calls. I'm writing letters. I'm a lawyer, so I happen to be representing people. But I'm I'm still engaging with the institution of prison. And so, um, I don't know. It's, it's it's challenging to answer that question because I think the way that we fail is that we imagine people inside as being a world apart, mm-hmm. and I think that's really really dangerous. So I want to talk a bit about your work. You've become an advocate for reforming the system. You actually had a great essay. This this ran in the Washington Post on Easter Sunday, and it's titled, If We Truly Believe in Redemption and Second Chances, Parole Should Be Celebrated. Do you think we're too fixated on what people have done and not what they have become? It's not even that we're too fixated on what people have done. I think that we literally have no system that imagines mercy and grace. Hmm. You know, we have parole rates across this country that's floating around five, 10, 15%. In that case in Virginia, this this guy was released. 40 years ago, he killed a police officer. He did 40 years in prison. He did 31 years without an institutional charge. He had people who worked in the prison saying that he was the most peaceful person they had ever seen. When he got released, if you read the articles that were criticizing the Virginia Parole Board for releasing them. None of those articles said that this person didn't deserve release based on these factors. Mm -hmm. None of those articles tried to assess who this person was. The articles just said, vis-a-vis him having killed the police officer, he should die in prison. Chauvin got convicted yesterday. He's going to do less time than I did for robbery. You know, it's like, it's not that we live in a country that's too punitive. It's that we live in a country that's too punitive when certain people commit crimes. Let's talk about Jarek Chauvin. Um, you tweeted this this morning, You uh, the quote, I woke up to a lot of blanket statements about the Chauvin verdict equaling accountability because prison will follow. Prison is punishment and Chauvin needs to do a bid. I won't call that accountability because we know accountability is necessary and next you'll say prison is. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think that we talk about holding people accountable for how they harm community. And, and we have a hard time really grasping what that means. And I think that comes in large part out of the restorative justice movement, where they think about accountability as acknowledging the harm, acknowledging who is responsible for the harm, and acknowledging what needs to happen and doing what needs to happen to repair that harm. My friends like Sujatha Baliga 
and Danielle Sered, who work on restorative justice. That's how I understand them articulating accountability. This is not what you get from prison by and large. And it's certainly not what you get just fundamentally based on a guilty verdict. And so if you say what happened yesterday was accountability, you're suggesting that accountability is a guilty verdict, which you know leads to prison. And then it sounds like accountability is prison. And I fundamentally disagree. You have a lot of guilty verdicts that lead to prison that shouldn't lead to prison. You have a lot of guilty verdicts that's suspect. And so I think we really actually need to ask, I mean, people in Minnesota, what is accountability? You know, when you have the prosecution pushing a case and it's pushing a case against the institution, maybe they should be asking, um, you know, Mr. Floyd's family what accountability is. What does it mean to repair that harm that has been done um, by this police force? And clearly, clearly, given that, you know, we had another shooting shortly after, mm-hmm. can't say we had accountability. Because accountability would mean that, you know, we could reasonably expect this not to happen. And I don't think anybody right now in Minnesota is saying that they could reasonably expect it not to happen again in the next week, month, year. And accountability should should make us feel like we're safe. And I, I don't know if folks would agree with that right now. What you what you describe makes perfect sense. And yet, as you say, this is something that none of us have any reasonable expectation will happen. Do you think it will happen in your lifetime? Richard Wright died when he was 52. I am 40. The life expectancy of black men is, is, is you know, lower than anybody else in this country. I have no idea what my lifetime is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and I'm not even like. And I'm not even and trying to be morbid about the whole thing. I'm just saying that, you know, we live in a country where it literally strips away the years from folks. And uh and it's 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 kinda sad, you know. And 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 the thing is, it's it's black folks, it's Native Americans, it's queer folks were always asked to project the change that happened in their lifetime when it's them the ones that's dying. You know, I, I've never heard a, a, a white American ask, like, in your lifetime, do you think that uh, we'll get rid of the racism that seems to still be poisoned in this country? Or in your lifetime, do you think that we'll get rid of the wide, wide disparity and in, in the wealth amongst you know, black Americans and white Americans. You know, in your lifetime, do you think that the citizens of this country will have a real way of understanding how perverse it is that, you know, Native Americans have such high rates of anything that befalls people that leads to death? We get these asked these questions about about us, but I would I would love to see the questions flipped and asked about the society as a whole, but also about the folks that, I mean, you know, I am glad President Biden was elected. He is 76 years old when he ran. Mm-hmm. The life, My life expectancy is like 62. I want him to answer these questions. 
Our guest today is Reginald Duane Betts. He is the guest of honor at an event hosted tomorrow by the St. Louis organization Women's Voices Raised for Social Justice. The event is called Visionary Voices, Reginald Duane Betts from Jail to Yale. We have a bunch of information about that on our website if you're interested in joining. You do have to register, but it's free to do. That's at stlpr.org. Duane, I want to talk a bit about your poetry here because this has been such a big part of of what has uh, sort of launched you into the place where you're having these conversations with so many people, even beyond talking about justice, you're talking about poetry. Uh, You've written three books of poetry. You mentioned earlier you've had several poems titled Essay on Reentry, and I want to talk about one of those. This comes from your book, Felon. This is about coming home from the bar and with your lips loosened by alcohol, telling your son about, quote, the years I spent inside a box. Is that poem based on a true story? Yeah, and I would say, so I'd say two things. So, um, so look, I come home from prison, fast forward 20 years, uh, or uh, 16 years, and I got two children, and the Connecticut bar examiners were like, well, you know, you passed the bar, but we don't know if you're going to be a lawyer, we don't know if you got the character and fitness. And so I'm in this battle where I'm essentially preparing like a parole packet for myself, and I got an attorney representing me, and we're trying to prove that I should be a lawyer. And so on the day that I get sworn in, you know, it was a special day, and I hadn't been in the courtroom with my mom for 20 years. You know, mm-hmm. I got locked up, sentenced when I was 16, and I'm becoming a lawyer at 36. And I, it was just a moving moment. And my mom didn't talk when I got sentenced. And uh, and she was sad, and she didn't have words for what was going on. And she was, she was embarrassed and probably ashamed of what I had done, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I'm in this courtroom, and I'm getting sworn in, and I'm feeling good, and my family's there, my kids are there, my wife is there. And after I get sworn in, and I'm now an attorney, I turn... And I say, I remember the last time I was in a courtroom like this with my mom. A judge sentenced me to nine years in prison. Hmm. And I forgot. I mean, I didn't forget. I was just in a moment. But my five-year-old didn't know. My nine-year-old knew, but my five-year-old didn't. And, um, and so the poem is reflecting on what it meant for me to come home that night and tell him. But I should, I should read the poem, if you don't mind. Sure. I would love that. So um, essay on reentry. At 2 a.m., without enough spirits spilling into my liver to know enough to call my tongue to silence. My youngest learned of the why of the years I spent inside a box. A spell, a kind of incantation I was under. Not whiskey, but history. As a teenager, I robbed a man. I'd tell him months before he would drop bucket after bucket on opposing players, the entire bedraggle bunch, five and six, and he leaping as if every layup erases something. That's how I saw it. My screaming, coaching, sweating presence, recompense for the pen. My father has never seen me play ball as part of this. My oldest son knew, brought into this truth by a stranger. Tell me we aren't running towards failure is what I want to ask my boys. But it is 2 in the a.m. The oldest has gone off to dream in the comfort of his room. The youngest, despite him seeming more lucid than me, is just reflecting cartoons back from his eyes. So when he tells me, Daddy, it's okay. I know what's happening is some scraggling angel lost from his pack finding a way to fulfill his duty. Lending words to this kid who crawls into my arms, wanting more than stories of my past, the sleep that he fought while I held court at a bar with men who knew that when the drinking was over, 
The drinking wouldn't make the stories we brought home any easier to tell. That is, it's such a powerful poem. And I want to say, I also, I love the poetry column you edit for the New York Times because so many of those poems hit me the same way. It, it feels like you're almost on this one-man quest to take poetry from, from being flowery and vague to being something that's so urgent and, and so grounded in real life. Um, what to you makes a poem that's, that's worth reading, that's worth writing? I think it's what you said. You know, I think um, we, we had this notion that we could only communicate with each other and empathize with each other if we had shared experience. But I think a poem that's worth reading is one that makes you hear something and an experience that feels completely foreign and yet feels close to your heart. Like in that poem, I mean, all of us who have children have had to tell our children something that we struggled with. And, and, and I think that's why people relate to that poem. And so I, I try to find poems that hit me and I try to find poems that hit me in ways that are unexpected, you know, hit me in ways that don't suggest my biography, you know, and don't even suggest my interest in the biography of the narrative or the lyric that I'm reading. I, I want to read a poem and immediately want to weep or hug somebody or shout for joy or laugh. Well, you have done that for me as a reader on so many Sundays, reading the poems you've chosen for the New York Times Magazine. So I want to thank you for that. And I do want to just remind people that um, you're here with us today to promote this talk you're doing tomorrow. This is at 7 p.m. with Women's Voices Raised for Social Justice. It's going to be in conversation with Carol Daniel of KMOX. What can attendees expect in that conversation? You know, I, I try to be candid and I try to say something that I didn't plan on saying. I think everything I've said in this conversation, uh, I had no plan for it. But I think um, you can expect to hear me say some things about myself, to hear me say some things about the world. And I hope, uh, I hope I get to say some things about why literature is so meaningful and transformative and why despite the sadness and frustration that I, I feel today, uh, I also feel hopeful. And I feel hopeful because um, I take solace in, in, in how many of us care about what tomorrow looks like. And I think that wasn't always the public case. So you could expect me to riff on all of those things. Well, Reginald Dwayne Betts, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. 
Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.